Hello and welcome to Maximus Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. The theme of today's episode is Mixed Opinions. We discussed five recent productions in New York City. Enjoy the show. All right, well, let's start with introductions, Nicole. Hi, it's Nicole from Mildly Bitters Musings, and I have a piece out in American Theater this week about copyright and uh, theater. And everyone should read that piece. It is so well-researched and written. Congrats to you, because I thought it was fantastic. Thanks. Great. I'd love to write something about copyrights. I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I'm just going to throw my 50 cents in about <laughs> well, legal Well, you issues. and the rest of the internet. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling <laughs> about the law. <laughs> so my name is Oren Squire. I'm with New York Theater Review. And this is Lindsay. I'm with Maximu. So before we jump into the shows that we have recently seen and our thoughts and feelings about those shows, there are two things that we have praised recently, semi-recently, that have encore presentations coming up. And I want to mention them in case anyone felt bad that they got left out because these shows were over or sold out by the time they found out about them. The first is Skeleton Crew, which we had a long conversation about. Um, Maybe that, they heard us. Yep. That is at the Atlantic, and it is transferring into their larger stage and coming back for performances in the late spring. Those are May 13th through June 19th. Now, the tickets there are $65, not cheap. But as we've discussed before, they do sell a few limited tickets for $20 to each performance. Previews, no, just, just the previews. previews. Thank you. Yes, I they knew that was it, wrong yeah. as soon as I said that. Um, $20 tickets, a few to each show during the previews. Those tickets go on sale April 29th. So mark your calendars if you would like to snatch one of those up. Um, it is a lot of high-quality theater for $20. So those, that, that is an excellent deal. And then the second show I want to mention is uh, Maximu's favorite, Andrew Schneider, uh, his show, You Are Nowhere, You Are Now Here, which we talked about at the Coil Festival in 2015, so over a year ago. It has toured the world and is returning to New York City for a few shows in the spring, March 9th through April 3rd at Three-Legged Dog. The tickets to that are 25 to $35. Um, it looks like they're going to have some reserved seats that you can get for 35 but the just general admission are 25 And we are organizing a group outing to that show on Friday, March 18th. So please join us then. Um, and we'll all go out for drinks afterwards. And it would be really fun to meet and talk to and enjoy this show with some of our listeners. So if you are going, make sure to, you know, ping us on Twitter or Facebook or email me at lindsay at maxmoo.com so we can meet up afterwards and discuss our thoughts and feelings about that show. There are sure to be many, many, many. And Three-Legged Dog, is that the one in Brooklyn or the one in Wall Street? No, that's the one down south of the World Trade Center. Okay, that's I've been there for yep. a play by a Czech playwright i can't think of the name the pig Val- yes valkov havel yeah. yes. yes who i like to say his name vaklov havlov I know, <laughs> I know that's not how you say it it's just when i get excited he is the former leader of the czech republic <laughs> yes i know <laughs> an amazing <laughs> man kind of like tony kushner combined with abraham lincoln combined yeah. with like gandhi he's a pretty remarkable human I mean, nothing but <laughs> Vakla, absolute Vakla. respect Vakla, when I pronounce his Vakla. name like that. <laughs> I completely screw up his name. 
So now on to the show and the shows we have to discuss this time around. We're starting with an immersive extravaganza, The Grand Paradise. Nicole? All right. Well, this is a production by the folks um, who did Then She Fell. So it's the Third Rail Projects. Um, it's based on a concept by Tom Pearson and directed, designed, written, and choreographed by Zach Morris, Tom Pearson, and Janine Willett, who are Third Rail Projects. And it is uh, set in the 1970s uh, at sort of a tropical paradise resort. And um, a, a sort of family of tourists arrive at this resort and then um, kind of lose themselves in the, um, the haziness of the era. Um, and you as audience members also get to do that. So it involves sort of large-scale main scenes, small group scenes that they sort of pull you off into, and then um, sometimes some one-on-one encounters. Is that fair? <laughs> that, that is an excellent description of what happened. <laughs> Minus all the sexiness. <laughs> So much sex. Oh, I love it. I mean, allegedly. <laughs> yes. The hint of sex. Right, right. So, yeah. So, very much they're, like, immediately in one of the main scenes, like, one of the women, like, just starts stripping off all of her clothes and then trades outfits with somebody else. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, each person goes in and has, you know, you get split off from the people that you're with. So, you can have very, very different experiences. And I saw a lot of male nudity. And the people I was with saw no male nudity um, during their trip so um you know i think your experiences can vary quite dramatically um yeah how did you feel that your experience was did you enjoy it did you hate it um i really struggled with this one Uh, i was like all set for you know sort of sexy hazy interesting um kind of like transgressive and fluid and just you know something kind of pushing the envelope um and I found it to be really kind of tame and um, hesitant. Uh, you know, uh, the choreography being kind of non-specific and and non-narrative, and not really giving me any kind of indication as to like the dynamic dynamics between the characters, the the struggle or not that these. Um, sort of visiting tourists were having uh you know it was very much like oh okay i'm just gonna leave my family and my husband and go off with this siren and you know maybe go have some sex with her while wearing silver lame I'm like okay um but then there was no conflict like there was literally no conflict in the whole show for me so you know i was like i mean i guess that's fine but you know it didn't really like nothing sort of escalated nothing sort of um uh, went anywhere for me if it's all just kind of like free love and no consequences and then there was this sort of heavy layering of the fountain of youth questions and um sort of death and and sort of new age you know palm reading and what's your sign and all that kind of stuff and i was like what is this getting at like there was a whole sequence about like time and mortality and i was like is this like are you sort of hinting at the aids epidemic coming in the 80s or is this just uh, you know, something you thought would be sort of like deep and cool to talk about. <laughs> I didn't think it was that deep. I just thought they threw a bunch of poetic sounding stuff together. These aren't really writers. These aren't really poets. So <clears throat> part of me just excuse them. And this is my blind spot. I just when people are flirting and they're sexy, <laughs> <clears throat> I admit they get a pass. <laughs> I admit that I felt like I was at a bar flirting with sexy ghost for two hours, I told Lindsay, 
and it was very nice. There was no plot, but my mind knew there wasn't going to be any plot. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to wander around and break almost every rule they told us not to do by accident. They said, don't open closed doors. And I was like, opening doors, um, don't touch people. I mean, I didn't get too grabby. Uh, they said a bunch of other rules that I just wasn't aware of, and I was just floating around like a kid. But I agree with everything you're saying, which is probably why I'm not a good person to review this. <laughs> because intellectually, I'm like, this does not fulfill any of my qualifications of a good show. But it has. I have that blind spot of like sexy people flirting. The guys had legs for days. <laughs> they didn't miss any leg days at David Barton Jam. They just were just gams and thighs <laughs> and nice little Shorty juicy shorts. shorts. And so I was like, okay, we can we can roll with this. But actually the most intimate stuff I experienced was with the women in the cast. Just massaging, even though that was a guy massaging me, but like massaging my hands, putting lotion on it while talking, looking you in the eye. It's kind of unusual. I don't really have that. And I don't think most people have that with strangers, at least on a daily basis, unless you're a masseuse or an exotic dancer or an actor maybe trying to get a role <laughs> to have people look you in the eyes and have that intimacy and rub your hands in some ways for me is, is kind of enough. Uh, and the massage was good too. And to talk in this poetic sing songy voice about blah, blah, Hallmark stuff <laughs> that they were spouting. And I was like, Oh, this is nice. And it sort of lulled me into this calm that I left the theater with, uh, but it wasn't, uh, well structured or made yeah. any sense and, and this is like one of my concerns is like i've seen a lot of one-on-one -on -one work i've seen a lot of immersive theater now and i've just seen all of these things done better by other artists with more behind them so i guess my expectations then have been sort of raised for like actual quality engagement and i got like a very sexy bedroom scene with like one of the male performers and you know like that was fun and enjoyable but it was like two you know, like it's a two-hour show so it was like maybe 15 minutes before it ended and i like by that point i was like oh you've really all sort of treaded on my last nerve for what you have yet to accomplish like i felt really bad for one of the actors who had to do this like really pointless like strip number like he sort of like stripped down into and all like out of all of his clothes and sort of just looked longingly toward i think what the direction of the man that he was sort of interested in where he had gone and then he just sort of like crouched in the sand and i'm like oh my god you're getting sand up your butt crack this is just like you <laughs> call your agent and tell your agent you deserve better than this like this non-narrative terrible strip tease like it just it was sad but it wasn't sad in a like affecting way it was sad in the like I think you guys are trying too hard to like achieve something that's not working. I had such a different experience from you. I mean, I've seen a lot of immersive theater too. And I find that this was actually very emotionally affecting and one of the better experiences I've had in this environment. And I don't actually fault them at all for the lack of a plot or any kind of conflict development. I, I thought it was beautifully danced and, that the intimate nature of it and the fact that they took care to make sure that each person had some type of unique experience really reassuring and I felt like they really tried very hard to care about their audience as opposed to so many of these immersive experiences which is just 
we'll put a lot of people out there. It's choose your own adventure. Everybody fights for the better experiences. And in the process, I end up having a miserable time. And so to me, I, I, this was one of the far better immersive experiences that I've had. I really enjoyed it. I thought the, I quite liked the movement, but I enjoy non-narrative dance movement. I think that's interesting. Um, in fairness, all three of us had different experiences. Oh, definitely. And we went on the same night and our experiences were radically different. Yes. And maybe I'm adding too many excuses to it. I should just say I did enjoy it. And maybe that was the emotional connection, even though there wasn't a plot and even though there wasn't a story. And maybe I was just getting off on the flirting. I have no yeah. idea. I just viscerally responded to this floating around sensation. But I think that's a very valid response to have at a, at a performance. And I don't think anybody's opinion should be discounted, um, whether you enjoyed it or not. I think, you know, different strokes for different folks. And to me, this was one of the more successful immersive experiences that I've had. And we didn't even get the alcohol. Apparently, they're getting their liquor license. Yes, and... I think they probably have it now. I think they may, yeah, because they seem to be serving something when I walked in. But They gave us something to drink. Did you get anything to drink? I yeah. thought that was like, was it grape juice with a little bit of vodka? Was it just... I don't know how liquor laws work, and I don't want to get them in trouble, so okay. I don't want to speculate. It was grape juice. <laughs> Never mind. Just kidding. There might be a thing where if you're not buying alcohol, there's a different loophole in the liquor license law. So at no point did we pay for alcohol. While they didn't have a liquor license. Just want to make that very clear to yes. the authorities who are listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> the authorities who are listening to Maximo spying on New York theater. Well, well I know just... the copyright police are out there. <laughs> the liquor license police are out there. I, just, I mean, I think for me, like I, you know, I think when I saw the drowned man in London, um, which feels like the closest comparison show to this, um, where you had a lot of, you know, sort of like seductive couplings where you were sort of behind windows, sort of peering at these couples, um, sort of hooking up and all that kind of stuff. Like it, it felt like the environment um, built around that engagement in a sort of very peeping Tom-esque way. But like it was in this kind of film noir-ish space and and vibe. So that all kind of like felt narratively driven. And I and when I say narrative, I'm not looking for, you know, like, and then, you know, Billy and Sue got married. Like right. I have no idea what the characters in The Drowned Man were really doing besides like adultery, murder. Like very clearly that's what it was and everything else was your interpretation. Um but the drowned man was still at a remove. There was no, at least my experience at the drowned man was it never engaged me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Officially. No, 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 exactly. And punch drunk, that's not necessarily their their aesthetic. And here, but like that's the thing. Like I've done all this one on one theater. I've looked deep into the eyes of an artist. Right. Um, and I mean, it can and it's very intimate and it's very intense and that's a really exciting prospect. Um. And, you know, and I enjoyed my one-on-one scene in this show, one of the one-on-one scenes. But, I mean, again, it's just for two hours worth of time, for $100 worth of entertainment, for me, the experience was like, well, I mean, and, and maybe you just have to be the right kind of audience for this kind of, you know, adventure. Um, but, like, I just would have expected more. Were you near the bar with more people who had blonde hair the performers had blonde hair um no i didn't have any bar scenes and i think nicole had a there's a rotating cast so all the okay. casts aren't necessarily the same but i would say if you're looking to spend a hundred dollars and you're weighing your options in new york city right now 
I'm not sure I would have a higher recommendation than this. Like, and I would I, absolutely tell you to put your money somewhere else. But where, so Stocks where? and bonds. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know where. You should go out to dinner and have a really nice dinner. Batard. It's a great spot. All right. Well, if you're a foodie person, then spend your money on food. But if you're looking for performance, I actually thought this was a great use of $100, as opposed to things like Sleep No More, which I would not spend a penny on a ticket there. Really? I've never seen it. It's not. I did not like it at all. I quite hated it, actually. As opposed to most... I think this is a a more interesting theatrical experience, a more emotionally passionate experience than you're going to get at most Broadway shows where you're going to pay more than $100 for a seat. I'd say go to Fun Home. The color I mean, look, purple. I know no begrudging Fun Home. Like, I love that show. And if you want to go I to mean, that if show, we're, if I mean, like, all of a sudden, you. I'm like, oh, if I get, if I give you that, those would probably be my like... top two recommendations. So, but anyway, I just think it's interesting that we all had diverse experiences here, and I'm I'm glad we are here to talk about our differing opinions. Okay, so now we're going to move on to talk about three plays. Not um, we're not going to talk about them together, but they do have some similarities in that they are basically your family plays. Um, they all take place in a family setting. Um, so let's start with Sojourners, Oren. Sojourners is written by Mufanisa Adofia, and it was directed by Ed Iskandar, and it's being put up by Playwrights Realm at Playwrights Horizon in their top floor space. Uh, the cast, some of my favorite actors, Chinasa Uche, Lakeisha Michelle May, and Hubert Point du jour. I thought that this was a very powerful play and an opener in Mufanisa's five or seven part family series about a Nigerian family coming to America and getting split up. I've read some of the other plays and full disclaimer, I know the people at Playwrights Realm. I know Mufanisa, but I'm also fairly honest as people know and if i don't like something i say it even if i like you (laughs) it has no bearing on your personality whether i like your work or not uh so sojourners begins with this couple from nigeria who have come to texas and the male is supposed to be studying in school the lead character and his wife is pregnant with a baby and he is slacking off and she's beginning to work at a gas station in the graveyard shift and meets a prostitute. They start up a relationship. Meanwhile, the next door neighbor or nearby neighbor, it's kind of left vague on purpose, is a prophet or disciple who has arrived in America and is trying to decipher some sort of voice or connection between the diaspora of Africa and America. And these characters are sort of woven together over a two-hour period on this box-like set that turns and turns and turns. I was kind of questioning the set at first, but by the second act, it made sense. But at the beginning, it felt like they had all this space, and they're only using this tiny section of the stage. And it was strange because I was sitting in the front row, so it was I didn't really get to see a lot of what was going on around the space. But by the second act, I understood what was going on, and it allowed for this beautiful cinematic montage effect when you can continue to turn and turn and get in people's rooms and get in people's minds for a moment and then the house and the box continues turning so i thought it was quite good i thought it was one of the best things i've seen so far this season skeleton crew and sojourners is right up there and grand paradise but for completely different reasons yeah very different hard um, to compare flirty, these flirty ghost reasons flirty ghost <laughs> we're gonna give it up for the flirty ghost uh 
But I should just clarify. So I'm opening up my program. The husband character is Ukpong, and the female, the wife is Abasamia, and the prostitute is Moxie, and uh, Chanasa Uche, who I've worked with before, plays a disciple. So Upong, I thought Hubert Pont du Jour was great playing sort of a uh, ne'er-do-well, gallivanting husband who's not responsible for his duties, but is charming. And I thought Lakeisha Michelle May uh, grew on me as Moxie, as a prostitute. There's a whole prostitute with a heart of gold who's tough uh, archetype that as an audience member, if you've seen enough plays, you sort of back up and go, I know where this is going. But she found the magic within that thanks to the director and thanks to the script. And then uh, Chanasi Ugbia played Abasamia. And these are just all phenomenal actors. And it's very rare to see a diverse cast on stage of Nigerian and African-American actors who are in an engaging, powerful play that's well-directed in an intimate space. So I would say it it should come back. And if you didn't get a chance to see it, because I think it's closing this weekend, I definitely see the follow-up in the next series. And I hope we get to see part two, three, four, all the way to the end. What did you guys think? I also really like this play. As I thought more about it and learned more about this play being part of a bigger series, it, it it's made me realize that how challenging it is to build a dramatic arc when your dramatic arc also goes through several plays that we didn't get to see that night. And indeed, this play does not really have a conclusion. It's left um, very open-ended, clearly leading to you know the next play in the series. And so I think for that reason, I, I struggled a bit to have a sort of concrete reaction to it because I realized I only saw a sliver of what is a, a longer series of plays, but I really liked it. I thought the performers were excellent. Um, I enjoyed the sort of beautiful lyrical nature of the, the, the play, the actual, the words um, and their relationships that they built during the course of the play. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I mean I actually I thought the the pacing and the the spirit of the work felt um very unusual, very different from other things that I had seen and and sort of appropriate to the story and to this struggle. Um so I you know, I think you could you if you're imagining, oh okay, it's an immigrant story, the struggling between this couple, but like there was just something sort of a little magical thinking to it that I wasn't totally expecting that undermined that sort of like direct, clear narrative on purpose, mm-hmm. which made for a very um which really kind of elevated the material and sort of took it in a very different direction and made it feel a little bit possibly more connected to these characters' roots in Nigeria and their cross-cultural experiences and feeling sort of lost and disconnected in America. I would also add that if people don't know, Nigeria culturally to Africa is like France to Europe. It is just a very rich culture when it comes to art, when it comes to literature, when it comes to theater. And it's sort of known around the world outside of America because we don't know anything except for ourselves. As far as just volume, Nigeria pumps out so much culture, so many movies, theater, uh, literature. And this past year or two, I've been on a Nigeria kick uh, reading a lot of novels. Okay, three. That's not a lot. Um, Americana. Three more than me. (laughs) This is being adapted 
by HBO with Lupita Mm -hmm. playing the lead role and producing it. And I've just been immersed a little bit more than I usually would in the literature of Nigeria and the culture. And when I go to the drama bookstore, I go to the uh, international section and purchase a few Nigerian plays. When I was over in London, I went to Rada after they produced my play. We went into the library and I told him I'm looking for African playwrights to read. And he pointed out a few Nigerian plays, which I bought that day. And then it was at Royal Court. They have their own library. I bought a few more. So maybe it's the wavelength that I'm on that it's probably going to be different from 90% of the theater in New York City. But I feel like this is an important uh, stone or piece in the wall of this beautiful mosaic that's going on of Nigerian culture and its relation to America, which has never been acknowledged because we take a lot from Nigeria, not only cuisine and literature and everything and how we talk and how we think, we're just not aware of it. And the use of music is so key in this piece that if you watch the black people in the audience, why would you be doing that? But if you're watching (laughs) the black people in the audience, like there's certain songs that just hit you if you are above the age of 30 or especially if you're 40 or 50, the songs that we're playing and how they link up with the characters' emotions with Nina Simone and Sam Cooke was just so rich and a great key into the character's world without telegraphing their emotions that it hit on very many different levels for me that maybe a usual audience would just be like, oh, this is just transition music. These are just, this is just an immigrant story. And it's like, it is, and this is transition music, but there's also something going on underneath. Anything else, Ted? Yeah. So three thumbs up there. Okay. The next play is Utility from The Amoralists. This is written by Emily Schwend and directed by Jay Stoll. Um, I included this in our preview for this month. And there I mentioned that they more or less have a reputation for being these sort of bad boys of downtown theater, very aggressive and macho in the things that they produce. This is very, very different from that. And I have a feeling that it may be a controversial production, but um, it is a very quiet piece. It is really a meditation on this one woman uh, named Amber, played by Vanessa Vache. And she has three kids and a ne'er-do-well husband, <laughs> a theme. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she works several jobs to pay for her family, and she is really, really struggling. And what you observe on stage for 90 minutes is her struggle to take care of her family and to put on a birthday party for her eight-year-old daughter. And things continually go awry, and her husband, uh, who is sometimes part of her life and sometimes not during this picture, is there. And he attempts to provide support and fails somewhat miserably at doing that. His brother, however, steps in on occasion and delivers uh, support. And then also the, the main character's mother is around, and she also... Uh, is more of a source of stress than of support. So, you know, like I said, this is actually a very quiet play and it is a, there's a lot of space in it and there is 
some conflict and there is some uh, moments when you think they might be on the verge of having a breakthrough or, you know, getting to a plateau where from there they can start to build towards more success and more, uh, more creating a more stable home life and family environment. Um, but it, it just never seems to quite click. The realization never seems to quite come through. Um, so I really liked this play. Um, I thought it was quite beautiful and simple and delicate. Um, I left, uh, pretty happy about it altogether. Um, what did you guys think? I think I'm the probably middle of the road person. Um, and I, I, I it's funny because I have this, I feel like this ongoing struggle with Emily Schwen's work. We saw her play The Other Thing last mm-hmm. year. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, I actually think I like what she's doing. But I think there's problems I'm having in these productions. And so I, I keep kind of going back and forth about is it the writing, is it the productions that I see of her work that aren't quite clicking for me? Because um, I think there's something really interesting about the way in which she portrays female characters and the sort of voices that she gives them and the and what we're seeing you know by getting produced you know giving these sort of female characters um you know i thought actually the dynamic between the mother and the daughter you know is very familiar and um that kind of like more irritation than support um felt very very familiar to me uh, and also in that energy that like I've seen my brother and my sister-in-law like you know struggling to make ends meet and you know trying to get the kids out the door and that kind of just like relentless like every day is a challenge and every day is a challenge in an America where people's money just isn't going as far where people's you know like if you lose one shift at work you could potentially not pay the rent that month you know like that kind of um, paycheck to paycheck kind of world which I think she's really crafted really well here but I also thought that because she's chosen a very sort of quiet approach, then the actors need to fill that silence and that space with some sort of emotional content, with some sort of, um, uh, with the two layers that are happening. So, you know, yes, on the surface, she's sitting there making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but underneath that, there is a, a sadness, a struggle, and all of this kind of like emotional um, well-being that isn't sort of coming out, you know, verbally. And... I felt with this cast, like, I mean, I loved Alex Grubbs, who plays the brother. He has this um, incredible monologue in the show where I was just like, this monologue almost makes up for the whole play for me. Like, his performance in that monologue was delightful. Um, But I I think I wanted more from the other actors to fill that space. Uh, I mean, because I am, you know, obviously a huge Andy Baker fan. Just turn off all the noise. Silence for hours. I'm fine with that. Um, but I want that silence to mean something, to feel something, to to um, to have a quality. And here, I felt like the silence was a little thin. I love Annie Baker, so can I say that and get that out of the way as the <laughs> only guy here? And I like silences. I feel like you have to make that confession if you're going to complain about silence. Like I'm not, I'm not that cranky person. I like silence, and the flick I thought was one of the most beautiful things at Barrow Street I've seen in years. This play did not do it for me on multiple levels. Number one, from the opening minute, I knew everything that was going to happen. And I turned to my partner for the night and jokingly, I said, I really think it's going to work out this time. And we both (laughs) laughed at each other because he's like, we're going to make it after all. And I was like, no, they're not. Um, We know that the entire show, every step is telegraphed. And I I kept waiting for like the reversal 
or the big reveal. I knew the brother was attracted to the lead character. That's not that big a deal. And you could have that in there, but I was waiting for another layer or a big reversal because from the moment it began, I was like, okay, they're struggling. She's sort of attracted to the brother and vice versa, but she's with this schmo and he's going to lie. He's probably going to cheat and their relationship's going to suck, but she's going to stay in it because this is Texas and look at the decor. So there's not really, unless the decor changes, this is pretty much sedentary environment. Every single element of the show I thought had something missing. The spaces of silence were filled with just the same tone of annoyance on the night I saw it. The annoyance by everyone and the uncomfortable. And you can play that, but I did not see the other levels. I just saw annoyance and frustration. You mean from the characters? From the characters. And congratulations to the immoralists for growing up. I guess this is their grown-up piece uh, that they're putting out into the world. But I was severely disappointed also within the context of my evening because that night I invited a friend playwright from Juilliard. We graduated a few years separate from each other who had given up on theater. And so we're at a restaurant before this play and he said, I'm done. He works for a video game company creating stories for video games. He's happy and he does stand up comedy and improv. And he said, all three of these things are visceral and immediate. If you suck, you suck. There isn't any, no, no, wait, this video game is like, no, this is not appealing to me. This does not do it. And he found, this is according to him, a white guy, granted from another country, but a white male. He's like, so many of these plays are whiny white people on stage who are just consumed with self-importance, who have no perspective on the world and worldview beyond their immediate circumstances. And it's stifling. He's like, I've seen so many bad plays where I think all these resources could have been used to tell a new story, to tell a new Annie Baker story. And instead, it's a secondhand Stephen Alley Gerges. It's a secondhand Annie Baker. It's a thirdhand John Patrick Shanley of that people are aping. And then we go to this play. This seriously is what happened. We go to this play. I'm sitting next to him. And I say that sarcastic comment at the beginning because we both know what's going to happen. We've been in theater for 10 years. We've clocked in maybe over 1,000 shows. So there's a muscle that's developed that the average person doesn't have. Excuse me. And as the play goes on, I can feel my audience growing tired, weary, resigned. And this feeling of like, is this all there is in the world? Is this just the future of theater is the same thing as the 50s, but not done as well. If you're going to do naturalism, do naturalism. And O Earth had a hilarious moment last night that they built on with our town that they're riffing off of where the guy's throwing dishes. And finally, the wife goes, stop, honey. There's nothing there. And we all bust out laughing. He's like miming throwing dishes. He's like, no, no, there's nothing there. This is this isn't good. And at the end of the show, she gets to, like, touch a real cup. She gets to, like, experience naturalism if you're going to do it. I felt like this was sort of naturalism with the people on stage making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then it wasn't because as an audience, we're watching this in a box and rattlestick space removed. And we're watching these things that are sort of real but not real. It couldn't make up its mind. And the silences weren't filled out enough. And at the end of the play, we walked out. And he just furiously began walking down 7th Avenue. And I followed him or he followed me. And we just didn't say anything for like 10 minutes. Just furious walking till we got to a cookie shop. We ate some cookies. 
calm down. He was like, this is everything I hate about theater. And this confirmed my disgust and disdain for it. And this is not some just average Joe. This is a guy who is very well trained and, you know, for what it's worth, graduated from Juilliard for what it's worth is very talented. And he's like, I am done with this art form. This is dead. This is done before and it's not done as well. And it keeps getting repeated over and over again by rich white kids who have money who go slumming in, you know, poor white neighborhoods or like, I'm going to write this play about poor white people. And he's like, this is why. I'm not coming back here. And he said, Orrin, you know what? At the end of our dinner, you had convinced me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe theater. Maybe I'm overreacting and I've been too bitter. And he's like, and then we saw this play. And I walked away from that feeling sad because I love theater. But I'm glad I got a New York Times theater critic pick and people are enjoying it. And I hope that she writes better plays because I actually liked her play last year at Second Stage Uptown Mm -hmm. a lot more than this. At least it was somewhat of a plot. So that's my dissenting opinion, and it's my opinion. Right. Well, I mean, I think we're, you know, I think it's hard when you, like I saw 270 plays last year, and I've seen a 1,000 plays in my lifetime, more than a 1,000 plays in my lifetime. And I think we all, you know, we forget (laughs) sometimes what it's like to just be a theater goer um, when it becomes such a... um, uh, such a big part of your life, such a, you know, woven into the fabric of your life. But I also think we sometimes, like, I keep, I've been reading this book about Robert Irwin and sort of some of the failures in his career as a visual artist. And I realized sort of as I was reading that, that we don't make space for failure necessarily. Like, we don't make space for failure and growth. And I remember a, a painting, a drawing teacher I had in high school who used to take paintings of mine and put them up in the student um, art shows that I was like no no that was like that was just like a mistake I was just working on something he's like no 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 that's part of this like you you put these things up here you look at them like there's actually something good that you've done in that even if you don't like the execution of it there's something in there that you're working through or you're getting to and I don't know like I guess I have faith in Emily Schwen's work having seen these two plays now and in the voices um, you know in sort of like poor white American voices that she is sort of capturing that there's something happening and I have more faith that like this might not be the show for me, but I want to see her to keep I want to see her keep doing it. And I want to see the female characters and the sort of feminism that she's putting on stage continue to happen. Um, so but yeah, I mean, I can understand the frustration of trying to sort of connect to something alive and, you know, sort of keep coming up with like, you know, flatlining heartbeat of, of a piece that just you're not connect that you're not um, connected to. Can I just say that failure is important? Failure with hypotheses is important. Failure where you just throw stuff against the wall or there's no actual thing you're trying out and you spent $20,000 is inexcusable to me. Uh, I used to work for a film company back in Miami like 10, 15 years ago, and they would have these outlines and I would tell them, this is what's going to happen if you do A, B, and C and why this isn't going to work out. They would go do the film and then it wouldn't work out and they go, wow, it went exactly like you said it was was going to happen. Oh, well, well, it was failure. And I was like, no, you guys aren't thinking. You're throwing money down a hole. And then you're going, well, that was an experience. We've learned from our failure. <laughs> Look at the money. Go down the hole. <laughs> there needs to be an aesthetic hypothesis you are putting forward like Annie Baker does. Very strongly without it being without her like telegraphing it very strongly. She's putting forward that then she tests. And then if you fail, I at least go, I understand what you were doing and how it was new and different in the progression and trajectory of your career. 
Emily Schwinn is a very talented writer, and I enjoyed the play last year. But I think the frustration writers who I talk to have, as well as audience members who have just given up on theater, is that they're seeing failure without hypothesis, failure without aesthetic point of view, and failure that just seems aimless. It's just like, okay, well, this is a play I'm putting up because they selected it. So let's put this play up and make everyone blocked as well as possible. I don't know what new thing that she added that she was trying to test out in American theater that I had to sit through. Right. I mean, I guess for me, there there was still some value there. There still was a very familiar place and character and, um, you know, sort of voices. Like, it really did make me think about my family and some of their struggles. And, you know, we do see a lot of, like, living room plays in New York and this was at least, you know, a, a, a different living room. This wasn't a new, this wasn't an Upper West Side, New York, you know, wealthy living room. This was a Texas living room um, of people, you know, that I don't always see on stage for me. And and so there was some value in it. But again, like I feel like I'm in the middle place, and we've probably overtalked this. But yeah, so let's move on to Washer Dryer from Mai. Okay, so Washer Dryer is a play by Nandita Shanoi, uh, directed by Benjamin Kamin. Kamin? Kamin? Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, directed by Benjamin <laughs> Kamin. Directed by Benjamin Kamin. Um, and it is a romantic comedy about a couple who ended up getting married kind of unexpectedly in Las Vegas and moved in together and are now living in. Um, Upper East Side, right? Hold on. I was trying to find her name. Um, And they're now living in uh, Sonia's apartment, which is a very small studio apartment, but it has a washer dryer. And she loves her little piece of New York City real estate. Um, But she kind of failed to mention to her new husband, Michael, that um, the co-op board rules prevent her from living there with anybody else. The apartment has to be single occupancy only. And so suddenly this comes out and it starts a um, bit of a snowball within their relationship as to sort of did they rush into this marriage um, who are they to each other and like what's really important and um michael's mother comes along because she hasn't actually met sonia um and she's a bit of a a sort of described in the play as sort of an you know an asian tiger mom kind of character michael's chinese american sonia is indian american um and so there are these sort of a little bit of sort of cross-cultural um elements to it but largely this is a this is a really sort of frothy um, barefoot in the park esque uh, newlywed comedy. Um, yeah, I thought it was a perfectly okay show, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, even though it sounds like it as it's coming out of my mouth. It was okay. Uh, I thought Jamal Dobson as Sam completely elevated uh, the stereotype that he began with. And the writing progressed it as the gay male next door neighbor, black and fabulous. And when he came on, I cringed a bit like, oh, no, the quirky next door neighbor who's gay and fabulous and who's there to sort of support the main character and doesn't really have a, an arc. But he had an arc at the end, sort of. And I thought a tiny, tiny, a tiny arc. arc. And Jamal Dobson's acting completely elevated not only his role, but the play and the latter half of it, when he was 
in it on stage the entire time, I was so grateful. And I could feel the audience's energy exuding warmth towards him. And then through that, the rest of the play. Because at the start of it, the first line is literally, honey, I'm home. So they're telling you what this is about. They're telling you, like, this is sitcom, Neil Simon-esque. I'm announcing it from the opening line. And I said to myself, okay, this is, this is where we're going. Um, and it fulfilled all of the boxes you check on that genre. And then it had a little twist, and it added a spice of multiculturalism. But then the characters were sort of stereotypes. Um, More than sort of intentionally stereotypes, intentionally right? stereotypes. Even the even though she was left unclear, I think it was a Jewish person. I was like, oh, the nosy Jewish supervisor of that was like the co-op board president, of the co-op yeah. board president, the gay black and fabulous guy, the Asian tiger mom. The uh, it was it was very stereotypical, but it was intentional. And it managed to turn it a little bit by the end. And I found that I enjoyed myself. I, I thought it was enjoyable and okay. Did it reveal anything new to me? Like the Emily Schwinn play? No, but it had a plot and was enjoyable. It wasn't, and they feel it was not Emily Schwinn. It wasn't trying to be with spaces, but it just was a story they were telling. As Oren mentioned, initially the laughs were a little sparse, but eventually, especially once the um, ancillary characters started to play a bigger role in the play, they started to roll more frequently. And, um, it won me around by the end. Like I was like, oh, this is fun. I had a good time here. And th- this is not an easy thing to pull off on stage. Uh, um, you know, like they say, comedy is harder than anything else on a, on stage. And on a, on an um, ensemble like this, I thought they did a nice job. And the hardest comedy is farce, yeah. which is why you don't see it on American stage, because it requires timing. It requires that double, triple reversal that goes on, the identity, miss missing identities it requires, like and, timing and physical yeah. comedy yes. and and just yeah and that was i think i think one of the hardest things is the the couple the two actors playing the couple i mean nandita shanoi who's the playwright also plays sonia the 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 one of the newlyweds um you know i just didn't think they they were like sort of super cute and adorable together and like they were getting the romance part of it but they weren't quite nailing the comedy side of it and certainly the the stereotypical additional you know fringe characters that come into it keep adding to that you know keep escalating the farce and that's what it's supposed to do but it's hard when you kind of aren't really into the you know you're like do you care if these people end up together or not well it's kind of hard if you're not really invested in them well can we talk about structure for a moment because comedia dell'arte and farce the star-crossed lovers which is the lead characters are typically the b-plot and in all the books I've read of Farce and Comedia dell'arte, they say this is the B plot because these are the most boring characters. Right. We know they're going to get together at the end. We don't really care, but it keeps you somewhat emotionally invested. And so moving the B plot characters to the forefront of the play, when we know what's going to happen at the end, sort of adds a little bit of a gap in time and space and emotion because there's no surprises and because the ancillary characters are more interesting. Usually the A-plot has something to do with someone getting money, someone dying, uh, two people hate each other, and then, like, the lovers, whether they're going to get together or not, wander on stage and like, baby, I, I can't wait to see you, but my parents won't let me. And 
you know, and so that's also a little bit of the structural issues with Forrest when you put the Starcross lovers at the front of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's funny because I wasn't the only reviewer, I think, who sort of pointed out the like the the roughness of the, the comic timing, which is hard. I mean, you know, I don't know how many days of rehearsal they have. I don't know how, you know, the press night being how many days into previews. But, um, you know, when it's supposed to be funny, I, I should be laughing more than I was. Yeah. Yeah. There was a 20-minute gap where it was silence. Okay, the last show we want to talk about is Tarzana. And this isn't really a review of the show. I don't think it was open for reviews. But we did want to mention it because I saw some printed materials that led me to believe that this would be coming back for additional performances. And so I do want to give people a heads up about it. Um, I'm not sure I'll be able to do more justice even having seen it than Jack's uh, description of it in the preview episode for this month but it did fulfill all of those expectations that were established by his description so radio hole is a long time crazy performance art collective here in new york and this show is based on a script by jason grody oh jason Grot. yeah we were both uh Writing tutors at New School, like, 10 years ago. How do you say his last name? Grote. Grote. Or Grot. Oh. Jason Grot or Grote. Okay, well, I said it the third way. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine with that. Sorry, Jason's cool. you're famous and wrote for Mad Men. I'm sure you give a no, shit about cool. how I pronounce your name. Um, so, oh, gosh, I don't even know where to begin with this show. It is a... There are vampire cupcakes. That's where you begin. <laughs> you didn't eat one. I meant on stage. <laughs> <laughs> There are both vampire cupcakes served to you upon entrance. And I ate one and they were delicious. And also on stage. Dancing. Um, Dancing vampire cupcakes on stage. I feel like there's nothing more you need to say besides that. This is basically (laughs) a live action cartoon. Like Saturday morning cartoon. Adult themes. (laughs) Some nudity of a very odd sort. Um... And tons of blood everywhere. That sounds yep. hilarious. Yep. So, which I think might be Radio Hole's thing, maybe. Well, I, know, I read up a little bit on them, and there's definitely um, liquid substances involved in all their shows. Okay. But I think this one is specifically the blood show. Okay. And this premiered at Mass Live Arts. It was actually a commission of that organization. Um, And then they did just four performances here at the Performing Garage. Um, But like I said, I'm hopeful that this uh, will be back for more performances. Um, It was super weird and interesting. And there were all kinds of like theater performance art Illuminati in the audience. And it was just fun to be Not just us. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't even referencing us. I know. Well, I'm just happy to be in their presence. <laughs> um, so without reviewing it, anything you want to add, Nicole? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, there is something to be said for a work that, um, you know, somehow manages to play the cartoon comic book sex violence and um, sort of uh, sort of silly hysteria in, in this kind of way. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's nothing, I haven't seen anything like it. If you're looking for, you know, theater that's outside the things that you normally see, this is absolutely that. Um, you know, just bizarre and sort of just, but I like really enjoyed the, uh, you know, just sort of giving in to their 
shenanigans yeah the mania of it all yeah. you just yeah. go along for the ride and try to enjoy yourself and in this instance i think we did so very wacky the literal throw it against the wall see if it sticks <laughs> form of theater and i mean there is a splash zone so you know watch out <laughs> which i noticed on t- doing research for today's shows that um you actually get a splash zone ticket and pay a little less for it there are like two different levels of tickets so now i really want to see this splashing and blood and vampire cupcakes <laughs> and beer apparently they're also known for always giving out free, free beer, beer. Which, it was too cold to drink beer i was like do you have a hot toddy back there oh my god i could use that right now <laughs> no it's freezing okay let's mention what we have coming up i'm just gonna start with todd backus's emily dickinson's paranormal investigation I'm seeing this week, and I'm really excited about that. I might see uh, – well, I am seeing The Woodsman on Wednesday. I'm seeing Todd's play on Thursday or Tuesday, I believe. I would also mention over the weekend I saw Christine Haruna Lee's To the Left of the Pantry and Under the Sugar Shack. That's at La Mama Club at night, like 10 p.m., and I would definitely recommend that if you're looking for things that are different and outside of the norm. It was one of the strangest things I've seen since Prophetica last year and it's at La Mama. So kudos to La Mama for reviving. It seems like they're, they're having a renaissance of weirdness, which I appreciate rather than just doing a retrospective on plays they did 30, 40 years ago. And they're tapping into the new artists coming out of Brooklyn college uh, who are doing the Mac Wellman track of experimental theater. So those are the three things I'm focused on. Christina Haruna Lee's, uh, to the left of the pantry, under the sugar shack, Todd Brian Backus's uh, Emily Dickinson's paranormal investigation activities, and the Woodsman this week. And Todd, for folks who don't know, he live tweets this podcast every week on Twitter. So he is a friend of the podcast, friend of the podcast, right, a member of the Folio Group. Oh, right, we've not ever mentioned Folio Group on the podcast, but that is a collective of media and theater people who are covering new york city theater in the new media space and you should check it out we're a part of it happy to be a part of it so this week i'm seeing white noises off um <laughs> that's fine <laughs> noises off with the all white cast thank you roundabout and your 50th anniversary white edition they're honoring their tradition yeah um <laughs> I'm not renewing my subscription, and I'm going to tell them exactly why. I'm seeing Nice Fish at St. Anne's Warehouse. Mark Rylance and the Lewis Jenkins piece about ice fishing in Minnesota. And um, and I'm going to the Secret Garden concert. Yay! Which was one of my favorite musicals on Broadway. Um, So I'm really looking forward to seeing the concert version. So I'm doing something that is a little not normal for me but i'm going to pericles at a theater for a new audience not normally speaking of artists who love their white casts yes um, yes the famous trevor nunn in his most recent comments about not uh wanting to hire a diverse cast for you know his work in england oh trevor and meryl but this cast so many bad actors here Hard to navigate New York's theater scene without stepping in it. Um, But the reason I'm going to this is because Christian Camargo is in it. Did I say his name right? Sounds beautiful. Um, I've enjoyed his performances in the past. 
And also Pig Pen Theater Company is in this. Pig Pen or Pig Iron? Pig Pen Theater Co. Okay. Is what their website says. Okay. And I can just never remember. I get them confused all the time. Pig Pen is the music runs. Right. So and Pig Iron is the weirdos from Pennsylvania. Philadelphia. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, Which I get confused all of the time. <laughs> it's it happens. It happens. I did not see the show that made Pigpen famous. Oh, okay. um, the old man and the old moon. Yeah. So I, which I really I, like, and I've never been to theater for a new audience. They're fabulous theater. Mm. It's wonderful. It's like Beautiful. a mini opera house. Yeah. yeah. It's so I figured this would be the thing that would get me to go there. So I am going to go see that. Knock off one of those weirdo Shakespeare's that no one ever gets to see. Exactly. Cause you know, I'm such a completist when it comes to, <laughs> Well, <laughs> all right. Really, anything anyone else has to add? That it is like really cold. We've yeah, been doing cold. this podcast with scarves and sweaters on. So I if they're know. long pauses, we're probably unfreezing or de-thawing <laughs> in between the moments. But it's great to see everyone on Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. It's Valentine's Thank Day. Thank you for our hearts, Orange. We're oh, all yeah. single. Vegan that here. lets you know that we didn't know it was Valentine's Day. <laughs> we're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, here's some hearts. Hey, I'm going to go to a single awareness we're all single and totally willing to date <laughs> to some extent seemed not totally committed because we could date if we wanted to just date anyone i think we're looking we, for someone who's not annoying Good luck. yeah someone who's not annoying who's not crazy who has a career and bring those people to our drinks night after yes. you are nowhere you are now here yes all the single ladies and gentlemen listening March 18th. It's also a secret dating show. <laughs> if you're in love with our radio Speed voices, dating. come meet Little us in person. Little does Andrew know. <laughs> His show is the hookup joint. Nine months later, babies are popping out. <laughs> <laughs> the You Are Nowhere Babies. <laughs> it's its own commercial for the show 50 years from now. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Nicole is at Mildly Bitter. Oren is at Oren Squire. And I'm Lindsay Barons at Lindsay Barons. We'll see you next week. Theatrical Media.